For our scripture lesson today, I will uh, simply read the passage from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. When it was evening on that day, which is Easter, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Judeans, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Come Holy Spirit, heavenly dove. Come kindle the flame of sacred love in these cold hearts of ours. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we ask for your illumination and your presence. Amen. I've shared before, at least in some of my classes, that when I was an intern in seminary in 19, the school year 1978-79, part of my work involved visiting Presbyterians who had come from small towns in Tennessee and Arkansas and, and Mississippi to have serious surgery or treatment at the medical center in Memphis. At one of the hospitals, Baptist Memorial, every Thursday I would go to the front desk and take a gray uh, card file box, go to the tab labeled Presbyterians, pull the cards out, jot the name and number of every patient who had listed Presbyterian as their denomination. And then I would start at the 19th floor and I would work my way down and visit every Presbyterian household in the name of the churches, the Presbyterian churches of Memphis. Now, I entered one room, and there was a boy about 10 years old, asleep, recovering from surgery, the crown of his head covered with bright white gauze. Two men were sitting in the windowsill by his bedside. So I said, I'm Larry Hayward, a Presbyterian seminarian, here to visit your family. The two men jumped up in tandem, and they said, we are his grandfather and father, and we are Pentecostal pastors. Now, I knew at that time that an errant Pentecostal card had gotten into the Presbyterian tab, <laughs> complicating my visit. But I wasn't going to say, oh, I'm sorry, I only visit Presbyterians. So I offered to pray for the child, an offer they immediately accepted. I went over to the boy and placed my hand lightly on his forehead 
And I offered my customary Presbyterian prayer, asking for God to use the doctors and nurses, the medicine and technology for the best health and healing of this boy. Now, as soon as I started praying, the two men started speaking in tongues. Now, speaking in tongues, which is also known as glossolalia in Greek, is a language of religious ecstasy that lies at the heart of Pentecostal faith. It is a language of prayer that neither the speakers nor the hearers understand, but it has the marks of a powerful religious experience. Now, I was only 23 years old at the time, and I knew what Pentecostalism was, but I'd never been around it, especially in the intimate setting of a hospital room. I was nervous as I started the prayer, and I ended it as quickly as I possibly could. As soon as I said, Amen, the two ministers stopped. There was dead silence. We exchanged farewells, and I went on to the next patient in the next room on the next floor. To my relief, that person was Presbyterian. (laughs) From then on, I checked the P's very carefully at that hospital. Now, the ecstatic experience of the Holy Spirit was not part of my experience, nor has it been in the years since. It is parodied in our culture as being backwards and unsophisticated, sometimes ranked only one notch above snake handling. To be sure, many a charlatan preacher has prayed on P-R-E-Y-E-D rather than prayed over P-R-A-Y-E-D, the members of their congregations, the attendees at their revival services, or contributors to their television ministries. Some have become corrupt and wealthy. Witness Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, Jimmy Swaggart, and most recently the founding pastors of Hillsong Church. But the Pentecostal experience itself, as divisive as it can be in churches, is legitimate as it was for the two men in the hospital room that I visited. It is an expression of Christianity that is experienced by about 27% of the Christians in the world, and it is the fastest-growing form of Christianity. But it is simply different than the way most of us who fill out the P card as Presbyterians experience the Holy Spirit. In the Pentecost text before us today from the Gospel of John, the disciples are gathered on Easter night a few hours earlier, having heard the news of the resurrection from Mary Magdalene, but still not yet certain of it. 
they remain fearful of persecution by the same religious leaders who had lobbied for Jesus' death. The risen Christ appears to them, shows them his hands and his side, and as he had promised, gives them the Spirit. But this gift of the Spirit occurs not through loud and dramatic ecstasy, but through a quiet breath. Listen to how John describes it. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, He breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. The disciples received the Holy Spirit as quiet breath. Now throughout the Old and New Testaments, the words breath and wind and spirit are intermixed In the creation story in Genesis, when God created the heavens and the earth, a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Wind, spirit, breath. In the next chapter, when the Lord formed Adam, the first human being, God breathed into this first human being's nostrils the breath of life. And Adam became a living being. Centuries later, when the people of Israel were in exile, God leads the prophet Ezekiel through a valley of dry bones. God says to Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones and say to them, thus says the Lord God, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. A few minutes later, after the bones have rattled and come together and been covered with sinews and flesh and skin, Ezekiel prophesied as God had commanded him. And breath came in to the bones. And they lived and stood on their feet, a vast multitude. Again, breath, wind, spirit. It is the same quiet breath given to the huddled disciples after the resurrection. These are beautiful narrations of the quiet breath, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. We receive the Spirit through the quiet breath of beauty. Early in my ministry, in fact, for many years, I struggled to find a quiet place to which to retreat for the actual writing of my sermons. I am very sensitive to noise. This was particularly challenging in my church in Houston, which had small offices that were together and there were a lot of people in them and the walls were very thin. At one period, I began to drive to the library of Rice University. It was a long drive, but it was worth it because I could find myself a carol amidst the stacks, put worry aside and write. One day driving home, I stopped at the Rothko Chapel 
a small modernist building amidst trees in a quiet neighborhood near downtown Houston. The chapel houses 14 of Mark Rothko's paintings of different hues of black against the white walls of the modernist building. I entered the open white room and sat on a bench opposite one of the large black paintings. It was the middle of the day. No one else was present. The room was perfectly quiet, even quieter than the library from which I had just come, and certainly quieter from the Houston traffic from which I had just withdrawn. I cannot say that I heard a voice. I cannot say that I even felt a breath. But I felt a presence, a spirit, deeper than the ambiance of the room, but similar to it in its noticeable quiet. I sat on the bench for several minutes, perhaps 10 or 15, much longer than I usually sit anywhere. And then I stood up and returned to my car and drove home through traffic with an extra measure of peace. But I have never forgotten the quiet breath of beauty. It's not only in the quiet breath of beauty that the early disciples received the Holy Spirit. It is also in the quiet breath of commission. Dr. Gail O'Day, a biblical commentator with whom I was privileged to study before her untimely death, points out that these earliest disciples are being commissioned to continue what God had sent Jesus to do. As the Father has sent me, the risen Jesus says to these disciples, so I send you. These disciples huddled in a room received the breath of God and they are commissioned to make God known to the world through Christ that the world may choose light over darkness. They are commissioned to bear witness to the Spirit as the link between the historical ministry of Jesus and the future life of the church. In other words, they are commissioned as a group, as a community, as what will become an institution to continue the work of Christ throughout future generations. Hearing their commission, we realize that we are both the products of their commission as well as the inheritors of their responsibilities We are the future generations about which Christ was concerned. And we are the ones charged today with continuing their commission. I pray not only on behalf of these, Jesus had said earlier, prayed to God earlier. But I pray also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word. So again, that the world may believe that I have sent them. We inherit this commission. Even though we may worry about the future of the church, the future of Christianity in the world and in our country, the antidote to our worry is to hear and remember the quiet breath of the Spirit 
that infuses us to bear witness to Christ in our generation? How can we help but respond to that commission? And finally, I'm reminded on Memorial Day weekend that we can experience the Holy Spirit through the quiet breath of sacrifice. The sacrifice of Christ, the sacrifice of others, the sacrifice to which some in this room may be called. In the past four weeks, I have had for the first time since before COVID the opportunity to conduct services at Arlington National Cemetery. Two separate graveside services a month apart for two spouses who through their lengthy marriages had sacrificed much and received much in service to their country. In between these two services, I returned to the Pentagon again for the first time since well before COVID to participate in a promotion ceremony. Among the 30 or so people gathered, I think I was the oldest person present, which was really the only bad thing that happened that day. I think I was even older than the parents of the person being promoted. But I heard the story of the person being promoted. The stories of colleagues and friends in the military. The story of all their attempts to balance parents and spouse and children with such service. I was escorted through the labyrinthian maze of tunnels and gardens at the Pentagon by a Hispanic military officer in charge of logistics for the service. He had grown up in the Bronx several decades after I was in seminary in the nearby Upper West Side. As we walked through all these mazes, it took a while. We compared stories from separate periods of New York Yankee dominance of Major League Baseball. When I asked him how he was led to serve in the military, he told me how he had entered ROTC in college and continued for nearly 20 years. He shared that it was both stressful and a point of pride for him to serve in the building in which the branches of service are housed for the nation whose constitution he has pledged to support and defend. Unrelated to these trips to Arlington Cemetery in the Pentagon, a few days later, I heard a story of a member's father who as a child had fled on foot from one genocide in Europe in which he had witnessed the capture of cousins, the death of a sibling, and the disappearing of his parents. He ended out in this country and served in a subsequent war, defeating another genocide, after which he was able to receive an education, establish a family, build a life in this nation with a security he had never before known. Even up until his death, like many others, he rarely spoke of the atrocities he witnessed, even those committed against his own family. An hour or so after this conversation, 
I happened to read an intense statement of Christian pacifism from one of the leading from one of the leading theologians of our generation. The statement was moving and powerful and provocative. It called for a different kind of sacrifice, which I understood to be true at one level, but which I knew I could not myself support in the fallen and cruel world in which we live. But I was grateful that we live in a country and worship in a denomination which welcomes such variances and explorations of viewpoint on even something as significant as serving in human warfare. Writing all this for the closing section of this sermon, I came to realize that as I look at the rows of white headstones at Arlington, as I observe the crisp and beautiful ceremony that accompanies any service there, as I hear the salutes of any number of guns fired fortunately into the sky with blanks, what I experience at this national site is tragic awe. Awe at the sacrifice of those buried in the soil beneath neatly etched stones. Awe at the sacrifice of those they leave behind. And tragic awe at the sheer human capacity for violence and evil, which makes their service and their sacrifice necessary. But I am also minded that whether the Holy Spirit comes to us in quiet breath or ecstatic speech, whether it comes in the language of prayer over the bedside of a grandchild, in the last breath of a comrade slain in battle, or a family member lost to genocide, the Holy Spirit commissions us to bear witness to the presence of God in the world, to continue the work of the crucified, risen, and ascended Christ by carrying on his name as members of the community that he formed and commissioned for the purpose of being a blessing blessing to all the nations of the world. In accepting this commission, we join centuries of people who have carried Christ's name in the past, and we join centuries more who will carry Christ's name in the future in whatever form the church takes in Alexandria, Virginia, in Moyes Bridge, Kenya, or in thousands of communities around the world. These communities are filled with people both like us and outwardly different from us. People who have received the Spirit from the same quiet breath of God who commissions each of us to bear witness to Christ in the time and in the place in which we respectively live. This is what the quiet spirit leads us to do. Amen.